I'm going to hope that the two of you make my mood better. <laughs> we will try. Welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law, the post-election blues podcast of record for the discussion of what's left of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on November 10th, 2016, two days after the official start of the apocalypse. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, and another member of the undead who joins me on this show is... The attempting to be cheerful Frank Pasquale of the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. A quick reminder that it only takes a moment to go to iTunes and rate the show. Uh, please help us out here. Uh, your reviews and comments really help the show. And if we could monetize it, uh, we could travel out of the country more. This week on Twill, <laughs> we are very happy to greet Dr. Jill Fisher, Associate Professor of Social Medicine at UNC Chapel Hill. Dr. Fisher is a social scientist with a PhD in Science and Technology Studies from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute and has great expertise in medical sociology. Her research interests include social studies of the pharmaceutical industry, clinical trials, political economy, healthcare, and social inequalities, and research ethics. This is a really big thrill to have you on the pod. Jill heard so much about you. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So not so much a, a lightning round uh, today, more an admission that there is an elephant in the room. So if, dear listener, you would quit surfing that New Zealand immigration website for a moment, Frank has something to say. Yes, and this is all owed to Nick's sharp eye and uh, Tim Jost's sharp blogging on the Health Affairs blog. Um, he immediately had an insight post that we'll link to the show notes. I am just uh, summarizing and adding some color commentary. And of course, if either Nick or Joe wants to join in, please interrupt me. But I just wanted to give the four main points of what looks to be on the relatively near-term horizon with healthcare policy. The first is that the Congress has already passed a reconciliation bill uh, in 2015 that was vetoed by President Obama that would do the following, would get rid of premium tax credits under the ACA, uh, would get rid of the mandate, uh, both individual and employer, would get rid of the expansion of Medicaid, and would get rid of uh, maintenance of effort provisions of the ACA and presumptive eligibility for folks, uh, certain folks in Medicaid, and would get rid of the uh, ACA taxes such as the um, medical device tax, et cetera. Um, or there, the, this is the this is a already in legislative form in terms of like being able to get rid of these things because of the reconciliation prog process. Right. And the budget reconciliation can avoid the filibuster. So a lot of folks going into the election thought, oh, nothing can really happen because there will be a filibuster of any effort to repeal the ACA. True of an effort to repeal wholesale all you know, 957 pages or whatever the, the end count was, um, but not true in terms of budget reconciliation. And one of the things I find really interesting in terms of like how this legislation may be shaping up over the next few months is – Will they get rid of some of these taxes, um, like the medical device tax uh, or insurer fee or Cadillac tax, or maybe – um, if they go in sort of a Rick Scott direction, and I've heard his name mooted as a potential HHS head, um, Rick Scott in Florida, we covered on the show previously his efforts to tax um, hospitals and to sort of cannibalize the healthcare system from within. So to the extent that, you know, this is seen as an opportunity to sort of go after the healthcare system in general, then maybe that might aspects of the taxing uh, aspects of the ACA may endure, but perhaps there will just be this sort of more wholesale repeal approach. 
The next thing that uh, Tim Jost brings up is the potential effect on children with respect to the uh, Children's Health Insurance Program, CHIP, which comes up for reauthorization in 2017. He notes that Congress could end CHIP uh, as well. The next is sort of an administrative law point in terms of regulatory priorities. The Trump administration could do a lot of damage to the ACA just by saying, look, it's not our priority to enforce various aspects of it um, or to enter into uh, rulemaking to revise uh, Obama administration rules that were implementing the ACA. Uh, of course, for those who are fans of the great legal decision, uh, State Farm versus Motor Vehicle Manufacturers Association, um, our listeners will know that you know there have to be reasons given for changes in policy, et cetera. But but uh, looking at the more current version of that doctrine uh, in administrative law, as evidenced in the FCC versus Fox case, perhaps the reasons do not have to be all that much more than there has been a big political change. Um, furthermore, the other thing that Joe springs up that I think is very powerful was not on my radar going into the election, but certainly is now, is innovation waivers. Now, you know, a few years ago when we were thinking about innovation waivers in the ACA, we were thinking about things like the Vermont uh, plan to uh, provide single-payer health care. Um, nowadays, the types of things that are likely to be in innovation waivers, especially because the GOP now has the legislature and governor, both houses of the legislature and the governorship in 24 states. Um, the innovation waivers are likely to be like the types of programs that we've discussed earlier in the program with Nikki Huberfeld from Kentucky um, or the uh, Indiana type of waiver programs that are pretty punitive uh, with respect to participation in Medicaid. And the, there might be lots of other things that are sort of taken off the shelf from Cato, Heritage, AEI, um, other places uh, that would be seen as uh, potential targets for uh, innovation. Um, and one interesting legal question will, of course, be to what extent will any of these things be innovations or seen as within the scope of the innovation power, and to what extent will they be seen as uh, directly contradicting what I have come to term the rump ACA, which will be the provisions that will be left standing because of the filibuster, um, but will be sort of shorn, uh, they'll be left standing after the stuff in the ACA that can be gotten rid of via budget reconciliation uh, has been dispatched with. So that's sort of my summary of the uh, Jost blog post. He's got more analysis. What I'll also link to, by the way, is uh, a discussion by Sarah Cliff in the Weeds podcast about the uh, contraceptive uh, rule and, uh, and some other discussion in science about the extent of reconciliation authority. Well, I'll throw in three points, I guess, Frank. First, critics of the ACA have always got away with using, quote, Obamacare pejoratively to describe aspects of the law they know voters don't like, mandates and premium increases, for example. Sadly, for six years, President Obama and the Democrats have failed to win that rhetorical battle. To use one of the president's favorite phrases, come on, man, if you have a signature achievement, you should be able to sell it. Well, now the pottery barn rule comes into play. The GOP now owns it and what follows. A record 100,000 people signed up for exchange plans the day after the election. What are they going to do or say with it to those folks? Can they repeal the mandates without killing guaranteed issue? I don't think so. And that's a major flaw in that reconciliation bill you mentioned, Frank. Will they remove funding? 
training, risk pool assistance, and generally just let the ACA crash and burn over the next year or so before repealing it all? Maybe, but let's not forget that there's a memorable election promise out there. Better insurance for all that's cheaper than Obamacare. In four years, an election may be won or lost over that. Secondly, all markets dislike uncertainty, and it's that that has corporate healthcare stakeholders most on edge at the moment. Six years of dealing with the ACA, changing their business practices and relationships to both reflect it and profit from it. These relationships are as hard to unravel as the law itself, and some industry players won't want it unraveled. Big pharmaceutical companies are cheering at the moment because the California price proposition lost, along, of course, with any danger of it creating some national momentum. But how many other healthcare stakeholders are as happy with the broader election results? There are many Republican governors who really like Medicaid expansion and don't want to get blamed for its demise. Equally, the ACA has brought massive new revenue to insurers and hospitals. They're going to insist on equivalent sources. Finally, I think we can say goodbye to wonkish reforms, uh, nuanced policies, let alone anything evidence-based designed to nudge healthcare in different directions, are unlikely to be the stuff of the incoming administration. So you can say goodbye to meaningful use, value-based purchasing, quality and pricing transparency, macro MIPS, readmission penalties, and so on. And don't even get me started on privacy reform or net neutrality. Instead of anything like innovation, we'll be watching 2006 on a loop trickle-down economics, HSAs, and high-deductible policies, and employment-linked waiver plans. And just wait for the newly constituted court to embrace ever more excessive forms of commercial speech protection, thereby eviscerating vast swathes of information-based regulation. Now, where were we? Ah, yes, quote, New Zealand law requires you to be registered before you can work in some occupations. If you want to apply for a visa to work, you'll have to get registration before you... The New Zealand bar exam? Oh, come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> that is a tour de force critique, Nick. And I just wanted to just one thing I have to pick up the thread on in terms of the cheaper insurance, etc. It seems that like the the bottom line of selling insurance across state lines, which is apparently the magical elixir to solve all problems healthcare related. That and by the way, I was hearing about uh, extending the age rate or, or ending uh, limits on age rate banding. So I was hearing a lot of conservative pundits coming up to the election say that you know let's allow insurers to charge young people five times or six times less than the old, or vice versa, charge uh, people in their fifties and sixties six or seven times more than what we charge the young. The main effect of those seems to me to be to encourage risk, risk sorting, right? To encourage essentially insurance that's going to be um, uh, keyed to uh, or priced actuarially. Does that? Do you think that's going to be a theme of Trump care or sort of the Trump uh, uh, administration? I think so. I think uh, moving back to underwriting is going to be a big part of what's happening. And while that's going to happen, I think, in the regulation or deregulation, of the private markets, um, I think it's the the public pieces that are going to be uh, most uh, interesting. Just what conditions will be placed on Medicaid, for example, to to make it less of an entitlement. That makes a lot of sense to me as well. I mean, the other thing that I think is quite interesting in your, I mean, there's so much interesting in what you had said, but just what I've jotted down was the worry about the pushback from insurers and hospitals. And I think what's so interesting here is, you know, you a lot of people looked at the stock market and saw what stocks went up and down after uh, the Trump presidency. And it, I do recall, I think that the insurers and hospitals all took a hit. 
And so perhaps the way the market is pricing this in is just the thought that the healthcare industry is just, or those parts of it are not part of the Trump coalition. But I don't know, you know, how that's going to turn out. And the, this raises the other larger question that I've looked at in some of my work in terms of like, is there an ideological uh, spin even to sectors, you know, and, and perhaps the goal of the incoming administration will be to shrink the healthcare system uh, overall, but not clear. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that they'll learn quickly, just as Obama learned, that uh, this particular aircraft carrier is very slow to uh, turn around. And uh, there's going to be a lot of, there's a lot of inertia in the healthcare system. So any belief that they can do this fast, I think is going to be shattered fairly quickly. Totally agreed on that. Saved by inertia might be a good consolation. Saved by inertia. (laughs) And I think probably a podcast title, Frank. Excellent. (laughs) That's what I was hoping. (laughs) So Jill, uh, excuse our ranting. And again, uh, a, a great welcome to you. Um, you bring some wonderful uh, perspectives to uh, some really interesting uh, parts of uh, healthcare uh, law and policy. And I, I wanted to start by talking a little bit about some of your work about um, clinical trials and uh, your work on how sort of healthy individuals come to, and I'm, I'm uh, paraphrasing from one of your pieces, come to willingly, uh, eagerly participate in these risky activities. I'm interested in your perspective on this, but um, perhaps you could you could start uh, by explaining to the listener how a medical sociologist approaches questions like this that perhaps Frank and I are more are more used to approaching from a purely legal doctrinal or ethical perspectives. Sure. Yeah, I, I've been really interested in clinical trials for quite a while now, and. I think my interest in them sociologically began when I started to realize that there was a huge change happening in this country in terms of how and where clinical trials were being conducted. So prior to 1990, most clinical trials were being conducted in academic medical centers, uh, which is probably where most listeners sort of expect that they're still happening today. But really, after 1990, part of this kind of neoliberal shift more uh, broadly and globally, the pharmaceutical industry started to see that uh, they could do their clinical trials differently, cheaper, faster, by uh, outsourcing their clinical trials to private for-profit companies as opposed to taking those clinical trials to academic medical centers. And so really what I've been studying is this industry that has sprung up. And I think my interest particularly in healthy volunteers is a function of those changes in the industry itself. So part of looking at that is that Well, really, if we go way back, a lot of these clinical trials were being conducted in prisons uh, prior to the 1970s and the regulation changing around that. Um, But once pharmaceutical companies couldn't do these experiments in prisons anymore, most of them had their own uh, small in-house companies that they were using, you know, maybe 18 to 24 beds to start testing their products um, to see if there were... 
um, untoward side effects with some of these. Um, so if you kind of think about drug development in phases, phase one clinical trials are those that are really just looking at the safety and tolerability of products. And these are usually done in healthy volunteers, um, mostly because it's a, it's a very efficient way to do it, but also because if you're trying to see what does the side effect profile of a drug look like, it's easier to establish that in healthy volunteers than in patients. Um, you're not trying to adjudicate what's the illness versus what's being caused by the drug. So in the 1990s, and then definitely into the 2000s, we started to see that um, a lot of these huge contract research organizations that have sprung up over the last few decades started to build their own phase one units. And that's kind of where all of this business has been going. And so just to kind of give you a sense of it, some of these dedicated phase one units, so facilities that specialize in healthy volunteer trials, and that's really all they do, some of them are 300 bed units, so bigger than some community hospitals. Um, the largest clinic in the country is in Fargo, and I think is a 540-bed facility. So just as I started to track these changes in the industry, it just really intrigued me about what's happening. How do they even fill all of these beds? What kinds of studies are happening in them? Um, and so I think that's really what piqued my interest in looking at this specifically. So I was familiar with the literature on on overseas clinical trials that um, U.S. drug companies uh, are sometimes uh, indulge in and some of uh, the issues that they raise. I had never really put my mind to uh, trials here. And uh, you note, for example, that these healthy volunteers in phase one are primarily drawn from racial and ethnic minority groups. And they are participants who have a history of underemployment, for example. What more can you tell us about that? And, 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 and what kind of conclusions do you draw from it? Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely right. That, um, you know, one of the things that is really interesting to me is that typically when you're thinking about medical research, uh, a lot of researchers lament how difficult it is to recruit minorities to clinical trials. But when you're looking at healthy volunteers in phase one trials, it's really the inverse where uh, non-whites and mostly men are the predominant group of people who are being enrolled in these clinical trials. And I think partly it's because of where these clinical trial uh, units are, are set up, that they tend to be in urban areas, usually places that are easily accessible by public transportation. Um, and so I think that plays a really big part in who participates in studies. And of course, the way that they're recruiting participants is by offering money. Um, and so that is, you know, they're not trying to generally draw on people's sense of altruism or anything else that participants are paid for their time in these studies. The other big piece of it is that phase one trials, unlike later phase trials, typically require people to stay in-house in the clinic for some period of time. And so it's pretty difficult to participate in a study like this if you have a full-time job. Uh, just logistically, it would be hard, but I think also most people wouldn't really be that interested in trying to get the time off from work. So I think there are a lot of structural factors that make it so that you would be most likely to see men, um, minority men in particular, but also people who are underemployed or unemployed in these clinical trials. You use structural in another phrase as well in that paper with Monaghan. Um, you, you talk about, quote, structural coercion, that unlike uh, conventional forms of coercion is not rooted in the researcher-participant relationship. 
or linked to particular study protocols. Can you explain that in a little more detail and and then maybe to go on to talk about how our traditional notions of informed consent do or do not map to that kind of issue? I, I think I'll actually start with the second part of that because I think when IRBs are typically reviewing research protocols and looking at how researchers intend to recruit and enroll participants in trials, they are worried about coercion. Um, and that's typically defined in terms of looking at the power relations that exist and seeing if somebody can exert some type of threat of harm over someone else and basically force them to participate um, when they might not otherwise. And I think that's a pretty narrow idea of coercion. And so I've developed this concept of structural coercion to really look at what are our social conditions that entice or encourage certain segments of the population to participate in medical research compared to other people. And I think that you really have to look at it from this higher level in order to really understand the patterns of what's going on and who are the people that are most likely to be faced with the risks of medical research and at the same time also be very unlikely to experience the benefits of that research. It is a really difficult issue in terms of how you try to balance, and I, I was just thinking about human subjects research and protections overall, and a balance between trying to ensure some forms of fair compensation, but also trying to make sure that that is not uh, tilting the study population um, uh, in terms of effectively shifting the burden of research to economically disadvantaged groups. And I think that term of economically disadvantaged groups is one uh, from the common rule um, that, uh, and I'm almost certain is in the proposed revised common rule, although we'll see if that comes out from the Obama administration before the turnover of power. And it's a big issue. Um, the other thing that I want to uh, sort of transition us to is talking about um, one of your articles with a very um, provocative, interesting title in terms of it's entitled um, Stopped Hearts, Amputated Toes, and NASA, Contemporary Legends Among Healthy Volunteers in U.S. Phase One Clinical Trials in Sociology of Health and Illness. And that really piqued my interest because I'm so uh, fascinated by this concept of risk communication and risk perception. And it seems on the one hand that um, sometimes uh, the people involved in the trials may not really have the opportunity to fully understand the risks that uh, could be entailed by them. But on the other hand, what you're suggesting here, I think, or there might be a sort of a balance here to say that there are ways in which uh, certain legends can spread and can alter the perception of risk in unexpected or, or skewed ways. That's right. I think what's been very interesting to me in talking to healthy volunteers about their experiences in trials and their perceptions of the risks of trials is that people tend to speak in a lot of contradictions when they talk about how they think about the risks. So on one hand, they might say, this is the riskiest thing I've ever done. And then in their next breath, they may say, well, you know, life is a risk. There are always these risks. And so I think that one one way to start to see how people are processing risk is to look at the stories they tell. And I think that these urban legends or contemporary legends really do shed some insights into how people are processing the risks that they're taking. And so in these stories, 
they, they typically don't end well for the the volunteer mm. that's being mm. described in them you know whether they are harmed uh, long term or perhaps even they're they they die as a result of the clinical trial and so i started to think about well what does this mean that participants who are often a little bit nonchalant about the risks of studies like to tell these stories and that these stories are being told across the entire country um, so I started to really think about what's the function of these stories that are that's, that are being told. And I think what they do is that they provide uh, a sort of spectrum of risk that help these healthy volunteers sort of justify the risks that they're taking. So for instance, in this stopped heart uh, urban legend, which is the idea that there is some research clinic that wants to stop people's heart for some period of time time um, and then restart it. Now, what's interesting about it is that uh, as the story is told, the time that somebody's heart is stopped varies, the amount of money that they're paid for this varies. And I think what it shows is one, um, it, it provides this very strange way for people to talk with each other about how much money it would take to do a study like this. So, you know, how much uh, money does it really require to take such a big risk? But I think it also just creates some sort of um, end to the spectrum, so to speak, of the kinds of risks that somebody is willing to take. So they can say definitively, I would not do that study. Um, so therefore, you know, there are limits to the risks that I'm willing to take, that I do value my health, I do value my life. Um, and so it's really interesting to kind of see how these stories provide interesting justice justifications for taking on risks, but also, I think, provide this opportunity to rehearse decision-making in some sense, um, that they start to realize there might be studies out there that I shouldn't do, that there might be studies that are dangerous, and maybe I should pay attention when I screen for them and kind of think about whether or not these are risks that I th I'm comfortable with and that are worth the money that's being compensated. Yes, I totally get that. And I mean, to really bring home the point, I'd love for you to contrast that sort of exoticization or narrativization of risk with your findings in another study in uh, Science, Technology, and Human Values where you talk about the institutional banalization of risk. So would it be fair to say that it seems as though there's this interesting form of power and resistance, that the folks that are running a lot of these trials are trying to sort of banalize and familiarize the risk Whereas some of the folks that are in the trials are trying to emphasize the sort of unpredictability uh, and, and strangeness of the risks. I think it's really both and. I think that the same individuals can engage in both processes. So certainly a lot of the research staff uh, will kind of talk about how common these symptoms are and how transient they are. So I think that does sort of diminish uh, the sense of risk that these studies have. But I think even among participants that uh, right now I'm in the process of finishing up data collection on a longitudinal qualitative study of healthy volunteers. And as part of this study, we've asked all of the participants in our study to tell us about the phase one trials they're screening for while they're in our study. And the information they provide about those studies is where they screened, what type of study it was, um, and what are the expected side effects, among other things. And one of the interesting things about it is that most of the time when we ask participants about what are these risks, if they don't have their consent form in front of them and read it to us, they'll just say they're the usual ones. They're 
are the usual ones. And so I think there is this sense that if you look at enough consent forms, you're going to keep seeing the same things over and over and over in them. Things like nausea, headaches, diarrhea, constipation. And so I think there's this way in which seeing the same things over and over again does have this effect of diminishing people's worry about those things. Um, so I think that's part of it. And I think, you know, if somebody has done a lot of studies, there's also a desensitization that occurs because they think, okay, I've done five studies, nothing has happened to me, I don't expect anything will happen in the next study either. So I think that that somehow coexists at the same time with this sense that there are risky studies out there, and I just need to be aware of them, because I'm not going to let anyone cut off my toe or um, the or any of these any of these kind of urban legends that are out there stop your heart or uh do spinal taps which are, are not really urban legends there are there are studies out there that require a lumbar puncture but uh, nonetheless there are a lot of stories circulating about how these studies tend to end in paralysis or something like that are these narratives and the the issues that underlie them the sort of maybe even denial that just perhaps seeing in, in, in some of the subjects. Are these sort of intrinsic in the process? Are they unavoidable, incapable of being mitigated? Or should we really be reshaping how we regulate risk disclosure? Or is it more a process issue and we should be reshaping how IRBs oversee these kinds of trials? Great question. And I think part of the difficulty that I have answering that is it's really hard to say how risky these studies really are. I mean, I think that it is very rare for something catastrophic to happen in one of these clinical trials. And I think that does add to the sense among the healthy volunteers themselves, among researchers, among IRBs, that generally speaking, these trials are pretty safe. I think there's an expectation that these these trials will be safe. And even if you see some kinds of transient side effects, that because they're healthy volunteers, most people's bodies are going to return to normal and pretty in a fairly short period of time. So I think that safety aspect of it does really create complications because then when something happens, like um, this past January, when a healthy volunteer died in France, it's really unexpected. It's really surprising. But in fact, it shouldn't be surprising. We're taking healthy people and we're subjecting them to pharmaceuticals for some period of time that there are risks. I think it's just this very strange dynamic of if you don't have a lot of tragic things happening, then these trials must be safe. So I think part of it is just trying to figure out how to communicate that even if these things are very rare, they do occur. And so just to try to make it a little bit more concrete, among healthy volunteers in our study, and we've been following um, about 180 people for three years, very, very few of them have actually heard any stories about healthy volunteers dying. And so I think that is an interesting thing that most of them don't believe that many bad things can happen. And when they're talking about these urban legends, they tend to realize they're urban legends. They tend to have some degree of suspicion around them. Um, and so it, it is, there is something really interesting where they can believe that something very bad can happen, but they also don't think it has ever actually occurred, if that makes sense. It does. But I, I, one thing that struck me listening to you then was um, what kind of risk mitigation is offered to the research subjects? 
I mean, are they, as part of the protocol, guaranteed treatment for any direct or incidental um, adverse events? Are they given, for example, are there representations or uh, actuality of a continuous uh, medical treatment after they leave the trial? They Consent forms have to spell out what will happen in the case of uh, some kind of severe adverse effect. And most of the time, what those consent forms say is that if whatever happened is drug-related, then the clinic or the pharmaceutical company that's sponsoring the trial will pay. But I think it gets pretty hazy in terms of really figuring out, did this thing that happened to the person, was it a result of the drug or was it some other factor? And so um, I think that from the experiences of healthy volunteers in our study, that there's certainly a lot of instances where they are told to follow up with a physician and their expectation is that the clinic is going to pay their medical bill and those bills don't get paid. And so I think in practice, there are a lot of examples of people who do end up paying out of pocket to either just have something followed up on or to actually have something treated as a result of a clinical trial. That's quite worrying. I'm, I'm kind of surprised that that's never really been addressed. It is worrying. And it, it I think part of it is because a lot of these individuals uh, don't necessarily know what their rights are. They don't have very many resources. They're very unlikely to secure an attorney to, to help in these instances. Well, Jill, time is uh, pressing, but um, just as we we wrap up, one of the things I did want to ask you about is uh, you've been involved in some comparative effectiveness research. And I spend a fair amount of time with my students sort of comparing FDA efficacy inquiries, uh, the sort of comparative effectiveness stuff that PCORI is doing, and cost-effectiveness models, um, particularly new technology assessment regulatory models um, used outside the U.S., Given your involvement in these types of studies, can you reflect on any of these different models? And I guess in particular, sort of, uh, can you answer the question as to how effective comparative effectiveness or cost effectiveness research is? Well, I think it's critically important research, but I think part of the challenge of doing it and doing it well is that it relies on other studies that have been conducted, that it generally is um, a process of collecting publications or looking at FDA material to see, you know, what do we know about a particular treatment or multiple treatments in order to figure out um, sort of what's the best recommendation for patients with a particular illness or or something like that. And I think part of the issue is, um, as we know, when it comes to industry-funded trials, that those trials tend to overemphasize the positive about a particular treatment and underemphasize the risks, that I think a lot of comparative effectiveness research is is a bit hamstrung by these problems because there just aren't good data about a lot of these treatments. And so I think, you know, really, from my perspective, it goes back to needing um, more independent research being conducted um, that 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 um, is prospectively comparing different treatments. And I know that's a very expensive enterprise when we're talking about uh, clinical research, but nonetheless, I feel like a lot of that just needs to be done, that meta-analyses really can't get at some of these issues. And I teach medical students here at UNC, and I think 
from my experiences with them, it's pretty frustrating to them to imagine that as physicians, they're going to have to be prescribing medications based on a very limited um, limited science base that, that will help them know what's the difference between drug X and drug Y. Um, and so I think that that's really a, a huge problem with the, with the research enterprise today. So just to ask a final question, and I think sort of looking as much uh, retrospectively as prospectively on your really interesting pattern of research, uh, Jill, I was seeing in your resume that you've, you've done, you've talked about um, the professionalization of healthy volunteers um, in, in a lecture in France. And also one of your recent works with uh, Torin Monaghan talked about this sort of hustler um, creative entrepreneurial response to precarity by participants in phase one trials. And I guess the I, I see there as someone that like tries to think about uh, labor and the roles of labor in healthcare, uh, sort of a divergent path. It seems that on the one hand, one could offer a somewhat hopeful vision of a very disadvantaged population um, somehow being able to organize in new ways and professionalize and try to assert for itself a status that would involve, say, more protections or would, would sort of give it at least some bargaining power in the process. But the rhetoric of entrepreneurialism and creativity reminds me of some recent sociology of neoliberalism, which describes um, this as being sort of a go-it-alone approach. Don't trust anybody. You know, it's just all up to you, uh, et cetera. Do you think that among those two approaches or between the two, uh, a more professionalized uh, direction or just a, a, a movement toward an entrepreneurial identity or confirmation of that entrepreneurial identity, do you think either is more likely or is it another uh, both? and I think it probably is another both and because I think what happens is people are most likely to engage in collective action when they are in a study together. And so I've definitely seen this among the healthy volunteers that uh, I've been in touch with that, like, let's just say, for instance, that a clinic tells them we're going to extend this study by two days. So we need you to stay here an additional two days. Maybe they've already been there two weeks. Maybe they've already been there three weeks. Um then you really do see this kind of collective action among healthy volunteers because they think that, okay, now things are open to renegotiation. And they rightly see that if the clinic is asking them to stay longer, they do have some power there, that the clinic doesn't want them to walk out two days sooner. And so they definitely are able to negotiate for, for additional wages or really compensation, I should say, um, and sometimes even get other little perks as part of it. So it's kind of an interesting phenomenon when that does happen. But I think it really does require a specific study um, and changes to that specific study to really see participants sort of go in it together like that. Otherwise, I think it is much more the individualistic idea of I'm personally trying to maximize the amount of money that I can gain from participating in clinical trials. And that might mean that I'm breaking the rules in order to do as many studies as possible, um, or um, I might travel farther than um, I might otherwise want to, that most of these participants are really well aware of where a lot of these clinical trial sites are, and they really will travel pretty significant distances to, to do studies. And so I think that is part of this entrepreneurial spirit of you've got you've to spend money to, to make money idea, you know, that yeah, you might have to fly to Texas to do a study, but if you get in, you might make $10,000 in that study. And so I think there 
there really is this kind of gambling spirit to it as well. And that was The Week in Health Law. A big thank you to Dr. Fisher. Uh, Jill, great having your perspective on Twill. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. We post our show notes at twill.com. Uh, you can contact me while I was thinking if it's still available of changing my Twitter handle to at under my blanket with a bottle of scotch. But until I do change it, I am still at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank, where can you be reached this week? No at cowering Frank yet, but just at Frank Pasquale. Thank you for joining us. Have a legally interesting but healthy week and try to be polite when you greet our new overlords. Thank you.